0: Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. Twenty percent of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly well With All. Under the radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, summertime and the reading is otherworldly in this special August edition of Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. For the next hour, we are going through the portal into the world of speculative fiction. That's science fiction to many of you. Whether the stories include fantasy, the supernatural, or futuristic visions of life as we know it, avid fans are making this genre of fiction more popular than ever.
2: These aren't the droids you're looking for.
3: This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the Twilight Zone. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Come with me if you want to live. If
2: the apocalypse comes, beat me. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Captain's log, star date 1329.8.
3: No power in the verse can stop me. Exterminate. Exterminate.
0: Speculative fiction both challenges and entertains the reader with mind-bending tales of parallel universes and dimensions unknown. There couldn't be more perfect escapism for those lazy, hazy days of summer. Joining me now three local authors whose imaginations make speculative fiction their stage for dramatic adventures. With science as a foundation, their books have themes and plots which incorporate artificial intelligence, robots, virtual reality, and much, much more. These writers often find inspiration from the science and technology of our current lives. Max Gladstone's latest book is Empress of Forever, a nearly 500-page space opera featuring a band of misfits wild adventures in a war-torn future. Gladstone is best known for his six-book urban fantasy series, Craft Sequence, which begins with the 2012 Three Parts Dead. The series was a finalist for the Hugo Best Series Award. The Hugo specifically honors top authors of science fiction fantasy. This Somerville resident is also a fiddler and a fencer and is fluent in Mandarin, Welcome to Under the Radar, Max.
2: Thank you so much, Callie.
0: I'm delighted to have you. Also with me, Kay Chess. She expands her speculative fiction writing with her debut novel, Famous Men Who Never Lived, a twist on the iconic science fiction plot about parallel universes. Before writing this first book, Kay Chess was recognized for her short stories, which earned her both the Nelson Algren Award and the Pushcart Prize. The Providence-based author was also named a W.K. Rose Fellow, and teaches at the Boston Writing Center, Grub Street. Hi, Kay. Hi, there. Cadwell Turnbull is also the author of a first novel called The Lesson, which imagines aliens from another planet openly living side by side with residents of the Virgin Islands. Turnbull's short fiction has been recognized in several anthologies. Loneliness is in Your Blood was selected for the collection The Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy 2018, and his short story Jump was selected for the year's Best Science Fiction and Fantasy 2019. Hello, Cadwell. Hello. Hello. Well, I am delighted to have all of you. Let me begin by saying speculative fiction is not my genre. <laughs> so <laughs> this was very uh, eye-opening for me in many ways, and I was delighted with all of your stories and certainly captured by them. I wanted to be a little bit more expressive with the definition of speculative fiction for people who are thinking, well, I just thought science fiction was just, you know, some basic made-up stuff. So here are all of the <laughs> sub-genres of speculative fiction. It could be science fiction, as we've said, sci-fi fantasy fiction, supernatural fiction, space opera fiction, urban fantasy fiction, utopian fiction, dystopian fiction, apocalyptic fiction, post-apocalyptic fiction, alternate history fiction, and superhero fiction. And among all of those subgenres, you each uh, are in various categories. Um, And um, so we'll, we'll talk about that now. Max, let me start with you. How did you come to the story about the empress of forever.
2: (laughs) Well, I wanted to tell a story in which a uh, near-future woman who is facing a lot of the challenges that we currently see in our society is propelled into a future context and has to use the skills and problem-solving abilities that she has in her everyday life here, first to get home, but second to try to resolve the challenges that she meets along the way. So Vivian Liao is a tech billionaire about 20 years in the future in a moment that uh, carries forward a lot of the darker trends of our current political situation. She's trying to save her family, save her friends, and on the quest to do that gets uh, teleported basically into several thousand years in the future. She needs to get home. Mm.
0: All right, K. Chess, how did you come to the idea for famous men who never lived?
3: You know, you made me nervous, Callie, when you were talking about coming from a science perspective, because that's not where this came from at all. My book is about 156,000 people from an alternate version of New York City who find themselves unexpectedly passing through a gateway into our New York um, where they're not very much not at home. But the idea came to me when I was thinking about what you would miss if all of the culture that you remembered from your whole life were suddenly erased And so I was thinking about the books that we have to read in school, like A Tale of Two Cities. I read it in 10th grade and I remember some things about it. I remember the knitting. I remember the really long letter that somebody wrote in blood in prison. But like if I had to reconstruct the plot, I wouldn't be able to actually tell it in the right order, even though I remember things about it. But, you know, if me and Max and Cadwell got together, I bet we've all read it. We could, you know, come up with some other details probably and how weird it would be if we were the only ones who remembered it and no one else did and how it might suddenly seem more appealing if it were gone, if like there was no copy of it. Or, or if, as happens in my book, if only one copy was, you know, survived of a book that everybody remembered or that a group of people remembered, how valuable that would be. That's where my idea came from.
0: Okay. And Cadwell?
1: yeah um it actually came from a nightmare <laughs> that I had
0: <laughs> and your book is called the lesson the I lesson say.
1: yes mm-hmm. and um it was a it was a small town where aliens had integrated into society and they responded to threats with disproportionate violence so they would if you insulted them they might rip off a limb <laughs> and so the dream you know obviously stuck with me and when I started writing what would become the lesson I decided to set those aliens in the Virgin Islands where I grew up
0: Which is very different, by the way. Usually these kinds of stories are, set, you know, New York to venture to the Virgin Islands was already different. Right. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. It was intentional for me to do so because I I mean, I watch a lot of alien invasion movies and they're always set in places like New York, Los (laughs) Angeles, Washington, D.C. So I thought it would be really interesting to explore that from a small place.
0: Okay. Well, I think it would be great for the listeners to hear from your work so that we can get a sense of it. Max, why don't we start with, this is just an introduction of Vivian herself.
2: Sure. But here she was, running from herself. Even Viv had to admit that was a pretentious way of putting it. Yes, as she unwound herself from Natalia in the dark, she meant to leave it all behind, her guests and her companies and Lucy and her lovers and friends and fortunes, everything the world called Vivian Liao. But this wasn't some low-rent psychotic break retreating to an ashram finding Jesus or Buddha or whatever. Vivian Liao, trotting billionaire, was too closely watched to disappear. The last time she got the flu, the Nasdaq lost 600 points. Now, granted, that had been during the pandemic, but she hadn't had the bad flu, just the normal flu. And the government was after her now. If she changed her shape, left her houses and fortunes and armor behind, she could become small enough to slip through the net, take shelter, and strike back. She dressed in silence. Call it a tactical retreat. But when she crept downstairs wearing jeans and a gray hoodie and the cheapest sneakers she'd owned since her first IPO, no phone, no earpiece, no credit cards, nothing on her wrist but a watch that needed winding, and tiptoed in those sneakers over and around the sleeping, entwined bodies of her last enduring guests, out the half-open sliding door to the first pool deck and down the stairs to the second, then past the cabanas to the beach. She didn't feel like a grown woman, much less a fugitive titan of industry on a mission of vengeance and liberation, she felt like a kid creeping through her parents' barren house at night. Only the house was her house now, and the attention she did not want to rouse her own. She snuck away from her body down to the water. The stars had failed, and in the morning mist she could not tell sea from sky. If the world were as magic as it used to feel, she could just swim out until the out turned into up and the up to upside down, and tread water and raise her eyes to see this scrap of shoreline overhead, and with it all she meant to leave behind. The fantasy would have been sweeter if there had not been real eyes up there in the sky beyond the blue watching her, unblinking geosynchronous satellites with precision-machined lenses. The virus she'd slipped into their brains would only blind them for the next half hour. She wasn't taking this stroll for her health.
0: That's my guest, Max Gladstone, and his book is The Empress of Forever, and he's introducing us, really, as readers to Vivian Liao, his main character. She is really quite something. I mean, one of the things that I appreciated about all of your books, and of course, we have to have this in any book that's going to compel us as readers to stick with it, even if it's a genre, as I began this conversation by saying, I don't usually pay attention to, are the characters, of course. So I immediately bonded with her, even though she's completely different from me. (laughs) I'm glad. (laughs) Which was great. But I also wanted to point out that in each of your books, as we'll hear, you have set us uh, in a situation where there's so much going on that's assumed. There's a lot of watching and surveillance. I mean, we are way past where we are now, which is pretty scary to think about. And, you know, how would you operate in that space if everybody's watching all the time, for example? (laughs)
2: Well, we're so close to that moment right now. It's easy to forget because a lot of the tools that might be used in another 5, 10 years or perhaps already are being used without our knowledge to surveil us are things that we think of as consumer products. But when I go into a house that uh, my friends have their Alexa set up, maybe not even the little uh, tin can, but uh, maybe they have it on a smart speaker or something like that, that's listening. And whenever I say her name, Like I said just now, all of your uh, Alexa units woke up a little bit, tried to pay attention to see if you were asking them for something and shut down. And there are real humans on the other end of a lot of those units. It's not just an artificial intelligence. Real people were listening to decide what the robot should do Next. So we're living in a world of almost prevalent, uh, all-pervasive surveillance right now. We just sort of have bought into it because it gives us a level of convenience. If you have a smartphone, most of them you can't even remove the battery from it, which means that anyone who wants to track you who has the authorization to do so can and can listen or to Or doesn't have the authorization. Or it doesn't, exactly, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, so yes. it's not its not just the government, obviously. Mm. So, but uh, if your phone has been suborned in some way, it becomes a microphone. It logs all of your transactions. It knows the record of your face. It has your fingerprints. So these are things that I think we often try not to think about in order to go about our daily lives. One of the true powers of speculative fiction, I think, is that it allows us to slit open that tissue of normalcy that we um, create willfully, many of us, to get through the day, peel it back, and look at the musculature and the skeleton underneath, what structures really do exist.
0: following up on that, Kay, because I want you to read from your book as well. I talked to a comedian once and he said, you know, the best comedy really is real life. And then you just amp it up just just a little bit. And people are relating on the real life that they understand, but then you make it more absurd. So that seems to me what all of you have done in your work. Not absurd, because yours is pretty heavy, lady. <laughs> uh, and thinking about all of this culture being erased. Your people are UDPs. I want you to explain what that is before you read this bit about your main character who is
3: herself a UDP. Yeah, UDP is an acronym that stands for universally displaced people or persons. And so that's what the people in our near future New York call these folks that appeared in Cavalry Cemetery in Queens. They're not visually distinguishable from other New Yorkers because they were chosen randomly by a lottery. So they could be any race or any age, over 18, that is, men, women, queer people, people who are rich, people who are poor, uh, but they're all from this other universe. And they went through a one way door and they can't get back to where they came from. So this isn't my main character, but this is the statistician who developed the lottery system. What do I remember from Cavalry? I stood between the graves and saw the gate swallow up the 100th and final entry group in Lot 14. This was the first time I'd witnessed the full-size model, the imposing physical architecture of the gate itself, the hasty welding of its base, its rattling generators and galvanic compressors, and the snaking cords that powered them all. Not to mention the cough-syrup blue light it threw up. I saw the machines power down. Then the soldiers began to let the next group of strangers file in through the checkpoint near the generators. I joined them at the staging area, looking up at the lingering spread of the plasma dispersal, as awed and frightened as anyone else. Dr. Mornay was still there, supervising the emergency patch of some tube in the coolant system. Even the prototype had always run incredibly hot, and I remember seeing a new looseness to the very skin of her face and wondering about how many hours she'd been up. Somewhere else... Fires at the three power plants still raged, and workers risked their lives to operate the heavy machinery that would bury the smoking hulks, though the tons of earth could not muffle or contain the radiation. Somewhere else, army ministers met in various chambers and halls and bunkers, trading dares and threats, counting their weapons, and here I was, abandoning it all. I didn't want to distract her, but I felt the need to say something, to say I was sorry. I must have said something like that. Her response I recall perfectly. You did your part, Dr. Ibrahim. Then she put her hand on my shoulder blade, from each according to her ability, insultingly self-congratulatory. That's my guest, Kay Chess. Her book
0: is Famous Men Who Never Lived. And we should say that the premise is really after a nuclear disaster, which has sort of, for lack of a better expression, disassociated two, two worlds. So they ended up in two New Yorks, as you described in your book. And so this woman was talking about going to the Calvary Cemetery where it happened, where the, where the people arrived, these UDPs. The nuclear attack piece, again, back to what's potentially real, um, you went that way because why? Why did you decide to uh, jump off from that possibility?
3: I was thinking about what would compel people to leave their homes without any sense of what might be on the other side of this gate, So I needed something that would really ruin the world. And I think in this case, it's not a nuclear bomb, but it's rather an act of coordinated domestic terrorism where folks in this other version of the United States um, coordinate attacks on nuclear power plants and blow them up. And then that sets off a war between other powers in the world. And so in the midst of all of that, there's this bureaucratic effort to save some people with this technology they've already invented. And again, here we are actually having conversations right now
0: about nuclear weaponry, I mean, in this moment. So you don't write these books yesterday, but it's just that this is still a a part of the environment so much still.
3: Yeah, I was thinking about Chernobyl, of course, and folks are thinking about that a lot right now because of the HBO show, which I haven't gotten a chance to watch yet. But I I read a book about first-person voices from Chernobyl I liked the idea of different people. This is a little bit of an inspiration of the structure of my book where there are different people who speak first-person sections about their own different experiences that vary because of their personalities and because of their backgrounds. And I liked that this book about Chernobyl talked to scientists and everyday people who lived in Pripyat and folks that were first responders, firefighters who were asked to risk their lives to put out the fires and the reactors. I was inspired structurally by that book, but also that got me thinking about how Mm -hmm. frightening it was what happened in the past and and how that could happen again in the, the present or the near future.
0: Okay. Cadwell, the lesson, as we've said, is it takes place on the Virgin Islands. And often when you think about speculative fiction books and movies, it's the aliens are coming or somebody doesn't believe that they've seen them. Uh, Your book Mm -hmm. just goes beyond that. They they land and then you got to deal with it. (laughs) I really want you to read the piece that lets everybody know that they're here.
1: When he looked up, he caught sight of something. He leaned forward, squinting at the thing in the distance. Patrice followed his eyes to a little dot in the sky, growing bigger as they watched. Confused, Patrice said, following the dot as it moved across the blue cloudless sky. Oh, her father had a serious expression, but was still paying attention to her. About what? I don't know, Patrice answered. Everything. There were cruise ships in the harbor. The Disney Cruise Line bladed signature seven-note call of arrival taken from when you wish upon a star. The sound of it pulled them momentarily away from the thing in the sky. But before long, they were both looking up again, following the object. You have to be more specific than that, Pat. What is that thing? Aubrey, come check this out. I cook in, her mother yelled back. Take a break. No answer came from the house. What were you saying, little miss? What you confused about? I don't know, Patrice said again. Usually these conversations were easier to navigate, but so many things had changed in her head. She didn't know where or how to start. She knew what the words felt like, but not what the words were. They drifted somewhere in the back of her mind where she couldn't reach. It looks like it's coming here, she said. A seaplane, maybe? There was a seaplane port in the harbor, for she's like to watch them land on the water like massive metal birds. No, Jackson answered. It doesn't look right. In the coming months, Patrice would remember this day, wishing she were somehow more prepared for the further crumbling of her already fragile world, wishing she had seen that little dot on the horizon and known it for what it was, the harbinger of so many things. But she would come to realize that life didn't prepare you for the big things. They didn't announce themselves or watch their feet, mindful of their intrusion. All big things were rude strangers. Maybe it's a drone or something, her father said to no one in particular these young people and their toys. But the dot got bigger than a drone, bigger than a plane, and then she could see it, clear as anything. The thing was still high up, but large, dish-shaped, a massive floating swirl of a thing, perfect in symmetry, the body of it pearl-white with blue streaks that flowed over its surface like waves. The thing hummed so loudly it throbbed in Patrice's ears. She had seen something like this a thousand times, but never in the sky, never that big, the hum pulsed, and the outer skin of it pulsed as well, the blue streaks moving out from the spiral center. A giant seashell, Patrice thought, a seashell in the sky not obeying gravity, humming in her bones.
0: That's my guest, Cadwell Turnbull, and his book is The Lesson. Now, your book, again, is grounded in reality because you really are working with the themes of colonization because these aliens land and they are they're living there. Now they're they've conquered, so to speak.
1: Right. I thought it was important to to look at it from the perspective of the local islanders responding to them after living there for a long time. So it's five years after the Ina land and most of the novel is taking place. And so you get to see the Ina have already adjusted to living there and the humans have already adjusted to the Ina being there. But there's a lot of conflicts and tensions between the two groups of people because the Ina, like my dream, respond to threats with Disproportionate
0: violence. So if you think about your story with not aliens, that's happening around the world, right? Right. right. <laughs> and I
1: mean, in the Virgin Islands itself, there's a deep history of colonialism. Before it became the U.S. Virgin Islands, it was owned by the Danish, and the Danish actually sold it to the U.S. for $18 million in gold. And so, uh, and before that, there was a British colony and Dutch. and. So even from the Virgin Island perspective, there's a lot of precedence for the Ina arrival. They're, they're primed to look at it through that lens of colonialism.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is a special one hour edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley for Bookmarked the Under the Radar Book Club. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me are three New England science fiction authors Max Gladstone, whose latest novel is Empress of Forever, Kay Chess, whose debut novel is Famous Men Who Never Lived, and Cadwell Turnbull, whose first novel is The Lesson. So, Uh, Now that we've established that you all have these really interesting stories and they really are grounded in some real truths and actually some reality, your characters, I'd like you to talk about your main characters and what you like about them. I'll tell you what I like about each of them, but I'm just curious about (laughs) what you, as the the authors of them, like about it. Cadwell, I'm going to start with you. What do you like about Derek?
1: (laughs) I want to make a quick correction. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's $25 million in gold. I don't want to get that wrong for the Virgin (laughs) Islands people that would be listening. But Derek is a lot like me, actually. He's been really into science fiction from a very young age. So there's a there's a scene in the book where you see his shelf and it's it's filled with books that either I've read or books that I've passionate about or influences for the novel. He has Ursula Le Guin on there, he has posters of Firefly and Stargate ships. He's a nerd. He's a sci-fi nerd. Specifically, he loves aliens. So when the aliens show up, he already has a relationship with them where he feels like he wants to get to know them and understand them a bit more. And he's a little bit more open to that than the rest of the islanders, which makes him a a compelling, interesting character.
0: And we should say the next sub-character in your book is one of the... Ina. Ina, who is the ambassador to the human virgin island peoples.
1: Right. And being an Ina, she has a unique place within those two societies. So she empathizes with the human beings and the plight that they're experiencing at the hands of the Ina, but she's also sympathetic to the Ina because that's her culture and that's her people. A lot of the book explores her being in between those different cultures and what it feels like to be pulled in different directions. And ultimately, she has to make decisions about where she wants to land in this conversation between these two groups.
0: And Derek has to decide wh- how he feels about being viewed as a sellout in his relationship with her and trying to understand that group.
1: Right. He's <laughs> the ambassador's assistant. Yeah. <laughs> everyone knows that, and everyone on the island um, has a pretty openly hostile towards him because of where he's decided to position himself. And he kind of, um, I guess, naively didn't think that was going to be a problem. And throughout the novel, he finds out that, okay... This is not only dangerous for me in terms of my relationship with my other local islanders, but it also is um, getting the attention of the Ina. Yeah.
0: All right. K. Chess, your main character, Helen, also has you have a sub character, Victor, as well. And the two of them are part of the UDP group and trying to find their way in this new world. What do you like about Helen? She's kind of a
3: tough tough woman to get to like let me just say (laughs) she's strong though it's hard for me to talk about (laughs) just one of those characters it's hard for me to talk about Helen without talking about her partner Vikram and I think the reason why is because in an initial draft of this book the main character Helen was a man and her partner was a woman and I switched the genders at some point while I was writing about them and I think that's actually important yeah um because She is an unlikable character. She has lost everyone she's ever known. And she's in a relationship based on nostalgia, I think, with another person who's from the place that she also comes from. They have a lot in common in that sense, but personality-wise, they don't really have much in common. And she's made a decision to leave her nine-year-old son behind. And I think that the specific way that she loved him, but that she was willing to leave him and that she thinks about him now with regret it came out of the way i i think of absent fathers dealing with their children but i think it's also Mm. something that a woman could feel and that women do feel so she's getting into trouble she's picking fights with people and i think all of that is about her mourning the losses that she suffered and the shock of,
0: I got to say, I mean, that would be weird where you're in New York and you remember. I feel that now when you go places and something changed and you're talking to somebody and you say, y- you know, you know, where the yellow house used to be. And they're like, there's there's no yellow house there. There was never a yellow. You're, yes, there was. You know, yeah. it's that kind of thing, yeah. you know. So I, I get that with her and how frustrating that must be. And, of course, the stakes are much higher in this instance. So, Max, your main character. Tell me what you love about Vivian.
3: <laughs>
2: well, I love Viv's indomitable will and the speed with which she tries to organize the world around her and uh, to get what she wants. I started writing this book in uh, late 2016, and I was investigating uh, sort of anger at the world, at the, at the sort of surrounding system, and what kind of person you would need to be, not to join with a mass movement and try to fix things, but to try to sort of single handedly drive as far as you can to change the world to your own specifications. And she's got a lot of heart, but it's all on the inside. And she has given up a lot to get to the place where we find her at the beginning of the novel, at the head of a large corporation with a great deal of power that she's then going to have to give up systematically to get what she wants. And sort of the joke of the novel is you have a character who's perfectly suited for a certain kind of existence in this bleak near future, and then she gets thrown into another situation entirely and gets thrown back on her wits and her skills and her social abilities.
0: Well, I, it may be the joke of the novel, but I was thinking they should use this in, you know, corporate training groups <laughs> because the whole point is that she takes all of her earthly skills. She's out here in the universe and she takes a moment to say, now, listen, now, how would I do this if I were in a board meeting? Or what is the scenario that will make this person on my team, my little motley team, uh, feel supported in this moment, but allow them to come to the decision that I know is right? It's really very, very fascinating. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) And it's a great teaching tool to just observe in this totally out-of-body experience that she's in.
2: I'm glad you appreciate it. A, a, fr- <laughs> a person I know is joking that one of the points that this book makes is that there's not that much difference between a ragtag band of misfits in the traditional sort of Star Wars or Firefly adventure mode and a cross-functional scrum team. You have, you know, each person is really good at what they do and you have to get them all together to solve a problem.
0: <laughs> so in the world of it, you know, I named all the different categories, subgenres of speculative fiction. So yours is a space opera K Chess, you are alternate universes or parallel universes. And Cadwell, as I'm understanding the subgenres, you're urban fantasy fiction. or ur- So do you all think those are the right categories of subgenres for each of your work?
1: This hmm? would probably be like First Contact.
0: First Contact, yes. No, yes, well, okay. Yeah. So yes,
3: First Contact. How about you, K? Is that a good... Yeah, I'd say Alternate History, too, because I'm talking okay. a lot. I'm inviting readers to compare our world with this other world. Okay. And?
2: I think space opera is a pretty fair characterization. There's a kind of post-apocalyptic edge to it. and There's some post-cyberpunk stuff that's going on early in the book. One of the great things about science fiction and about speculative fiction is you get to paint with a lot of different colors very quickly.
0: And somebody said that we're comparing your little motley crew to the Guardians of the Galaxy.
2: Guardians of the Galaxy, <laughs> yes, exactly. Do you find that
0: as a compliment? Yeah, <laughs> I think that's a compliment, <laughs> okay. absolutely. I was
2: thinking about okay. Thor Ragnarok also a lot as I was writing this book. So.
0: Okay. Now, why do you all think that this genre of fiction has really exploded recently, because it has. So I've been looking around, reading a lot of stuff about where people are going, and it seems... I mean, obviously you have many choices under the umbrella of speculative fiction, but it's become more and more popular. Cadwell, why would you say it is now?
1: Um, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of people growing up now that are starting to write that really enjoy the genre and they're finding ways into it. So I think that... For one thing, it's expanding. It's being more inclusive. So you're getting a lot of people that love science fiction, like me, writing science fiction from their perspective. And that is really attractive to readers growing up now that wants to see representation within the genre. But I also think it's um it's just a really good way to think about and talk about really complicated things in the world while... Not talking about it, you know, straight on. And so it's often used, at least when I'm writing speculative fiction, I'm usually saying something about the world as we see it, but using another place, another time, another speculative element to do so.
3: Okay. I completely agree. I think that was a great answer. I think people think of genre fiction as escapism, and it is that. It is really fun to explore a whole new world that doesn't exist, but it also gives us the opportunity as writers to approach writing like science, where you hold one or more variables steady, and then you change something, right, and see what would be different. You can explore colonialism, you can explore surveillance culture, you can explore how we treat refugees and immigrants through a sci-fi concept that makes it less threatening and more approachable for readers and also frees us a bit imaginatively to kind of think outside the box about those difficult issues that tend to get really like that make us defensive when we're talking about mm-hmm. actual history and actual things that are happening. All right, Max? Max?
2: I agree with everything that's been said so far. I think um, science fiction and speculative fiction give you that metaphorical place to stand where you can start to move the world. They give you—it's not just a question of setting aside bias, I think. It's a question of getting perspective that allows you to see a new angle on the territory. You know, you're familiar with the territory that you're navigating, but from the ground level generally. And by changing something or putting yourself at a remove from the world that you see on a day-to-day basis, you start having to ask yourself questions about how you think the world has really fit itself together. So I think that's one of the reasons that right now we're in this moment of trying to figure out what the world is. A lot of things seem to be changing very quickly. And Maybe that's an illusion, maybe it's not, but I think it gives an urgency to science fiction and to fantasy also. Plus, I think there's been a big shift in the culture's relationship to it. We're now in an era where children born after Star Wars hit theaters are not just old enough to vote, they're old enough to have mortgages, that science fiction and fantasy also are common languages and so they've started to become less the languages of the kind of weird literary outclass the way they were in the 50s 60s and 70s and they've started to become more um, vibrant necessary tools that people all over the literary spectrum are using to address the world that they see
0: okay Well, you all are not only great writers, but you have to do a whole lot of heavy lifting in this genre because you have to add so much more to it. But we're going to keep talking about it. So coming up, we're continuing our hour-long August edition of Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Our special guests are three New England writers, Max Gladstone, Kay Chess, and Cadwell Turnbull, who are creators of science fiction novels, also known as speculative fiction. More of our conversation next on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. (laughs) Bye. <laughs> Welcome back. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. It's our special August edition of Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. And we're talking speculative fiction, commonly known as science fiction. Max Gladstone's Empress of Forever, Kay Chess's Famous Men Who Never Lived, and Cadwell Turnbull's The Lesson. All three of these local authors are joining me for this hour-long conversation about this popular genre. So, Cadwell, you mentioned something earlier that I wanted just to illuminate because you were talking about uh, seeing yourself in the newer books. The authors like yourself, you're an African-American science fiction nerd by your own description. (laughs) And those kinds of stories are being seen more and being published more so that your story is set in the Virgin Islands. There's a lot of black people in there on and on. And it reminded me of a time where it was really, really exciting to see that representation. I'm going to go back to Star Trek, way, way back, and I'm just going to play a little bit of Lieutenant Uhura, who is played by Nichelle Nichols, who repairs the Enterprise's communication system. This is a scene when she is doing that on the Star Trek Originals series episode, Who Mourns for Adonais. Progress report. I'm connecting the bypass circuit now, sir.
1: It should take another half hour.
0: Speed is essential, Lieutenant.
1: Mr. Spock, I haven't done anything like this in years. If it isn't done just right, I could blow the entire communication system. It's very delicate work, sir.
3: I can think of no one better equipped to handle it, Miss Uhura. Please proceed.
2: Yes, sir. Right away.
0: Likewise, on the early episodes of Star Trek, there was Lieutenant Sulu, and he was the Enterprise's senior helmsman, played by George Takei. In episode 10 of the Star Trek original series, here's a little conversation from Lieutenant Sulu
3: Sir, contact with an object. It's moving toward us. No visual contact yet.
0: Deflector is full intensity, it's coming at light speed. Collision course. Evasive maneuvers, Mr. Sulu. Object change in direction too, sir. Keeps coming at us. Now, the reason I wanted to play those two clips is because at the time, people were like, what? There's a Japanese guy and a Black woman in the future, in space, which seemed remarkable in so many ways. And the fact that this series, way ahead of its time, envisioned a world where there would be lots of folks was pretty impressive. And so here you are, late years later, if we may use the the jargon of the genre, doing the same thing but in but, you know, in a different way.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting (laughs) it's interesting imagining those earlier worlds where there were no people of color in space, like where did they go? It seems like there would be some (laughs) dystopian backstory there. And so it's exciting not only to see that this is changing, but also that you have people of color that grew up watching these things, writing about this stuff and imagining themselves in those places. So it's exciting stuff.
0: And your main characters are Black, but K. Chess, one of your main characters is South Asian. And so, again, this is the world that you see that seems normal to you, that
3: this would be what you would write and you did write. This has to do, I think, with how we see ourselves, right, as human beings. And if we are thinking about human beings as being, like, mostly looking white men, then those are the people that go to space. But why would aliens make first contact with good looking white men when there's tons of other kinds of people all over the world? Why would New Yorkers all be white? You know, I've always wondered that about Seinfeld, right? Like there are actually, <laughs> exactly. if you ever go to New York and look at the people around you, there are all different kinds of people. And that, I wanted my book to accurately to depict the New York that I know, even though I'm white myself.
0: Well, but it's the world, is what you're saying. And the same thing for you, Max. Vivian is Asian. Yeah,
2: well, she's Asian-American. <laughs> mm-hmm. She's a Taiwanese-American character. Um, yeah, it's really just a question of trying to represent the world that I see outside the window and that I see when I walk down the street and the people that I know in real life. I'm surrounded by a whole bunch of different folks, and I have a lot of different kinds of friends, and I want all of them to be able to see themselves in the work that I'm doing. So is this a trend that people are now
0: commenting on, readers, or people just, this is my world, so it seems normal to me, just curious, because as as I said, the Star Trek episodes made a huge splash and a lot of conversation. What are you all seeing?
1: Yeah, I think people mm-hmm. are noticing and they're excited about it. Mm-hmm. Um, Before, I mean, even when I was growing up watching TV shows, it was kind of like a parallel universe where there was mostly it was white folks, you know, and um, it's really cool to see that the representation that actually exists in the world in media and people are noticing and you'll actually see people respond if it doesn't represent the real world now
3: mm, interesting are you finding that as well okay yeah i think it's a trend in fiction in general maybe but especially i think speculative readers are open to that i see a lot of good queer representation as well in science fiction and fantasy both in terms of the creators that are writing it and in terms of, like, writers that might not share that identity, realizing that these people exist and ought to be uh, playing a part in the worlds they create. And how about you, Max?
2: I agree with everything that's been said so far. I think especially for younger fans, this is an enormously exciting time to be in the genre, and people are really excited to see broadening of the traditional subject matter, I think.
0: Well, I think in perhaps, I mean, I know it's important in every genre of fiction, but boy, in speculative fiction, scene setting is really, really, really important so that you can sort of take me there. And there were a couple of pieces I picked out from each of you that I kind of wanted you to read just to give us a sense of, you know, just what we were dealing with in your worlds that you created on the page. Max Gladstone.
2: All right. What with the spears and matronymics and slightly Viking rhetoric, Viv had pictured the Orn clan hall as a hero wrote of ring-giving post-apocalyptic kings, Grendel-haunted, maybe. She imagined wood and gables and gilding, a dais and a throne, a woman maybe in a horned helmet. But when Jen and his warriors marched them through the palisade, when the spear-bearing guards on watch there, their skin crackling blue with what Viv assumed was some sort of energy shield, drew back to let them pass, as rifle bots set down their weapons and the drumbeats swelled, Viv found herself found at the core of all these defenses not a palace not a building even but a grove pale barked trees spread skyward straight and ghostly as birch but redwood thick and tall so close their branches and flat leaves closed out the sky siara's people had hung stained glass and dyed paper in the woven branches gaps glimmering in the gloom. into the grove they drew stepping with care between and over high gnarled roots following the drums and the smell of thick spiced smoke until they emerged into a frat party Okay, fair. Viv was being cultural, essentialist, hegemonic, whatever. There were obvious differences between this and Viv's last frat party. The frat party's drums had been electronic, for one thing, while the Orn clans were made from skin and wood. The frat party's floor was sticky, while the Orn clan reveled on soft green grass. The frat party had fewer women, fewer dead post-human artifacts repurposed as jewelry, and considerably more polo shirts. And the wrestling had been more the mud and salacity type than for the honor of my father's varietal. But the Orn clan hall was a good deal like a frat party. Maybe Viv's beer pong expertise wouldn't go to waste after all.
0: <laughs> That's my guess, Max Gladstone, from his book Empress of Forever. I should mention, there's a lot of humor in your book. <laughs> it pops up in various fraught times in the adventure.
3: <laughs> okay? Okay. Looking back, she wished she'd deliberated about what to carry through the gate. One bag the evacuation officials ordered providing maximum dimensions as if those thousands luck had chosen were booking seats on an airship for a vacation. But Hell remembered her world history. As she packed, she'd considered the rumors about forced labor at America Unida's hidden education camps and about what the Power Brothers in Ceylon had done in the jungles to city-dwelling elites. And she'd remember the Komsos clearing the shuttles of the Pale from east to west. All of these regimes relocated citizens en masse by imposing arbitrary rules that encouraged compliance and complacency. Leave what you own behind. All you'll need is your identity papers. You'll see your neighbors on the other side. Then the march into the caves, the group showers, the trenches to be dug, docile victims unaware of what was coming, the suffocation, the live burial, the shot in the back of the head. Stay calm, the EVAC commission instructed. And yes, it needed to be said. Order was just barely being maintained in those chaotic days by the hope, a fiction EVAC promoted, that everyone had a chance. Hell's name being chosen in a frantic lottery didn't mean she was going to get out alive. Anything could be waiting.
0: That's my guest Kay Chess from her book Famous Men Who Never Lived. We're discussing scene setting and how important it is in speculative fiction. World building, we call it. World building, (laughs) all right. Uh, For you, Cadwell, let's go to page 57.
1: Mira turned her eyes and head slowly this time to look at him. Not quite normal, not quite human. It was a deception, knew the truth. You've been on earth for centuries, he said, pressing on. The bartender stopped polishing the glass in his hand. The older white man perked up, and the couple at the near table swung their attention Jackson's way. The background pop rock music seemed louder now, since even the young people at the corner booth had stopped talking. As if in answer, Mira got up and took a hundred dollar bill out of her purse and put it on the bar, the movement so calm that Jackson shrank back in his seat afraid of what would come. She smiled graciously at the bartender and moved slowly toward Jackson's side of the bar. His body tensed, his heart thumping hard and fast. He closed his eyes, listening to the soft footsteps approach. He could feel her closeness as she walked behind his chair. He waited in that tense silence for what felt like a long time. But nothing happened. When he opened his eyes, she was already headed toward the door, her back to him. Before he understood what he was doing, he got up from his chair. He rushed towards her, reaching out and grabbing her by the arm. Wait, he said. She was careful when she turned. It was graceful, slow, so human now, so painfully human. When she spoke, it was quiet, a secret for only the two of them. You can go back, she said, her eyes never leaving his. You can take your hands off me and drink your beer, and I'll leave in peace. Nothing else will happen. Jackson's eyes were wide. His body shook. Nothing about how she said this was odd at all. It was gentle, but he felt all the hairs on the back of his neck stand up. The chill slid all the way down to his legs. He let go. Good night, she said, and left. Ooh,
0: she was so creepy. (laughs) You all really do a good job of world-building, scene-setting. It really just takes you there. If you're just tuning in, this is our special one hour under the radar with Callie Crossley for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. My guests are Max Gladstone, Kate Chess and Cadwell Turnbull. You just heard him. Three local science fiction writers whose imagined worlds are gaining attention from critics and fans. And that's one thing that I wanted to talk about. Your fans are huge because we mentioned earlier that the genre has gotten so popular the fans are really specific uh, as I read around on the internet and they know your work and they are looking for you to stay on the track right Max <laughs> what you've been doing before uh, they' they're very particular about your work
2: <laughs> well um, it, that's interesting that you that you say so I mean fans, a reader is going to come to your book. They're going to discover you and start being really excited about your vision in a particular project. And sometimes they'll come away from that thinking, oh, I, I want that again. I want exactly that same thing over and over again. But, of course, if you give the reader that exact feeling, if you try to replicate the book, then it's never going to give the reader that feeling. They'll just uh, you know, feel like, oh, I've seen this before. So what people are often looking for is for a book that makes them feel the way that they felt when they picked up your book for the first time and that same surprise, that same excitement. So while I have written a series that's sort of been moving around between different characters in the same world, it was also very exciting to sit down and write Empress of Forever and This is How You Lose the Time War, another book of mine that came out this summer, which I co-wrote with Amal Motar. Um, which have nothing to do with my series, which were opportunities to be totally new and have that same burst of surprise.
0: Is that why you decided to do these standalones? That's what we call it when you break from the series. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I
2: decided to do standalone books to get to play in a whole new playground and to bring readers with me.
0: It's interesting to me, Chess, that, you know, your main character is a very strong woman. So is Max's main character. And you have some strong female characters in your book, but you all have a lot of strong women all through your characters, wherever they fall, whether they be the main ones or the sub-characters. And I think it's interesting. Is that a generational thing? Is that... That's not something we always would see, I have to say, not even in novels that are not speculative fiction. You sort of have to search for that.
3: Yeah, I wonder sometimes if it's what we think Even like if we are ourselves women, it's we're mimicking what we see. I still think that the Bechdel test is really useful when I'm watching a movie or TV. Alison Bechdel's idea that is there more than one woman character and do they ever talk to each other and do they talk about something other than men? Even though... I think of myself as wanting to read about women, and and though I'm a woman myself, I sometimes write stuff that initially fails the Bechdel test, and I have to be like, well, wait a minute. Why do I think that men are more interesting than women? Why do I think that a man has to serve this particular story purpose? So for me, it's been, even being of my generation, it's been a conscious process of unlearning. I don't know how other writers feel about that.
0: Well, it's interesting, because uh, Cadwell's one of your sub-characters, Derek really is your main character is, you know, a pretty strong presence in the book. And all the other ones, the you know, the former girlfriend and the grandmother and all of these have very much an imprint. And I was thinking about Max's book, where the main character and the evil person are both women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what, do yeah. you, what, what do you guys have to say about it?
1: It's interesting when people um, talk about the book and decide who's the main character. There's a lot of characters in the book. And the the book does begin with Patrice. Derek's longtime best friend, sort of lover for a time. But then she goes off and she has her own adventures. And it also ends with Patrice. Writing Henrietta as well, Derek's grandmother, was really important to me because it was um, taking from matriarchs in my own life. And so it's really the women that I try to write in the book that I try to render on the page as honestly and as deliberately as I can. They're people that I know and people that I relate to, and they feel... I wanted to make sure that I did that justice, that they felt fully human and fully realized as people.
0: So it's not even a thing about, you know, is this a strong woman character? It's like recognizing what you've known to be true in your life and putting that on the page. Right, exactly. Okay, all right. Max, how come your evil person and your good person are both women?
2: Well, there's <laughs> a, the book is playing with a lot of questions of identity throughout. So I think that there's a sort of sense of reflections. So how different characters interact with power and what power means depending on whose hands it's in so it felt very important that viv feel like she had an equal and opposite entity in, in the empress in general i think my books have a lot of female characters in them for reasons sort of connected with both um, Kay's and cadwell's uh, logic these are people that i know uh, or i know people very much like the people that i'm portraying in the books and there's this sort of danger when you're creating worlds. The further you go afield from stuff that you have direct sensory experience of, Mm. the more you're going to sort of fill in the blanks with not your own actual lived life, but with a sort of ideological sense of what should go there. So if I say, you know, a bouncer at a bar, you have an image of what kind of person that is, and that image is formed maybe by the actual bouncers that you've known and had a chance to have a beer with throughout your life. But most of it, given how mediated our society is, is going to be formed by images you've seen of bouncers, which is like really what casting call people in Hollywood think bouncers look like. And that's the image that you got. So when I started writing Three Parts Dead, I had a very, like, systematized process of if I'm writing someone who looks like the person that the Hollywood guy would cast in this role, and I try to challenge that directly. Why do I think this person is the size they are? Why do I think this person is male or female? Or uh, why do they have this particular sort of gender presentation? Why is their haircut like that? And if I could question it then I can start to see, oh, wait, no, that's just a reflex or I'm echoing something there. Why don't I try to do something a little differently? By the time I've gotten around to Empress of Forever, it, it feels more of a natural part of the process to ask. You know, I have a sort of reflexive sense of what a hero looks like or what the films I've watched since I was a kid told me that was. Why do I listen to that? Why don't I just make somebody who's different? There's no hmm. law. If the art is good, then people are going to get excited about it. So why not take the opportunity to... Broaden the world a little bit, or broaden the fictional representations of the world. Mm.
0: Well, that brings up an interesting question for me, which is that is it harder or easier if you can go any way you want to go? Because this is speculative fiction. You know, if I'm writing romance or if I'm writing mystery, there's some things have to remain. Well, many things have to remain grounded because that's the genre. But you can do whatever you want ostensibly. So, is it actually harder to be able to do that, Cadwell, or easier?
1: I'm not sure if you can do whatever you want. I mean, you can set a story wherever you want, and you can explore themes that you choose, but there's things to consider. You have to make sure that this is a story and that these characters are doing things that look and feel like characters, that people can relate to them. Even if you're talking about aliens or you're talking about, like, a, a unicorn, you have to ground that in something that's relatable to people. I feel like even when we're talking about, like, world-building you have to make sure that that world makes sense, that if you're reading about a fantastic second world, you want to make sure that people aren't going to be thrown out by something that just is really confusing. It Mm -hmm. has to follow its own laws, so to speak.
3: Okay. Kay, would you agree? Definitely. You're not Mm -hmm. freed from logic. And I think also recognizable details help readers enter the world. I really was taken at the beginning of the hour hearing Cadwell read about the Disney Cruise in the Seven Tone, you know, even as we're seeing aliens land, we're we're also experiencing something that even if we haven't been to the Virgin Islands, we can relate to, and it's the uninventable detail. It's realistic. I believe more that aliens are about to land there because mm. of the way that he establishes what the scene, the real life scene is. That makes sense. How about you, Max? Same thing. Um,
2: absolutely. And I think the more outlandish you get in your setting or in the powers that your characters have, the more clear the logic has to be. Mm. If you've ever played with small kids, you know you can introduce a set of rules to whatever fictional game you're playing. And like, if the floor is lava, the floor doesn't stop being lava. The floor can't stop being lava, or else the game is broken. So you know what might happen after the floor is lava is maybe as long as I'm holding this cushion, I have the power to walk on lava. You can add rules like that, and the game keeps going only as long as you're not violating the rules. Thank <laughs> you. That's almost a constraint that's unique to speculative fiction um, because you need to build all of the rules for this invented world before you can start telling the story in it. Whereas in a genre like romance, say, um, you can think of any number of movies that are sort of heart-rending romantic dramas where at the act three turn, the love interest gets run over by a lumber truck. And, you know, that's to sort of prompt tragic uh, resolution for the story. Everybody's walking out of the movie theater in tears, feeling like they've seen something of great worth. But the story, in order for that to work, does not need to establish that lumber trucks exist, that traffic accidents happen, that people die in them. Those are not truths that need to be established because we know those already Mm -hmm. about the world that we live in. When you're writing science fiction and fantasy, especially if you're the further away you are from lived experience from the Disney Cruise Line, the more you need to be very clear what can happen if you want that to circle around and affect the plot and the character resolution.
0: Well, whether this world or the next or parallel universes or aliens or whatever, you all have created some fabulous stories, and they certainly captivated me and kept me interested, and I want uh, listeners to check it out. So thank you all for joining me. Thank you. It was great to be here. Thanks.
2: Thank you so much. It's an honor.
0: Max Gladstone is the author of Empress of Forever. He is also a Hugo finalist for his six-book popular series, Craft Sequence. Chess's debut novel is Famous Men Who Never Lived. Her short stories have won both the Nelson Algren Award and the Pushcart Prize. Cadwell Turnbull is the author of his first novel, The Lesson. His short fiction has been included in the Best Science Fiction 2018 and Year's Best Science Fiction 2019. All of their books are available online and in bookstores. That's it for this special one-hour edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts please write to us at undertheradar at WGBH.org. Our engineers are Doug Sugarts and John Parker. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.